welcome to another edition of Joe's Media Corner. This week we're talking about sexual assault and its coverage. Of course, it's been in the news due to the Kavanaugh hearings, but also the whole Me Too movement goes back uh, more than a year at this point. Is it being covered properly, fairly? Are we getting the information we need and are we getting away from the stereotypes and the claims that really have no basis? We're going to talk to three experts in this area. First, Kristen Hauser, Chief Public Affairs Officer for the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. And Ilana Newman, she's a University of Tulsa professor of psychology who has studied journalism coverage and trauma. Finally, Bruce Shapiro, he's the executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. Let's start first with Kristen Hauser. How are you doing, Kristen? I'm good. How are you? Good. Well, we're talking to you uh, as the Brett Kavanaugh reviews and, and investigation are continuing. Of course, we just had the wild week of uh, testimony at the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee, and then they agreed to have another week of investigation at least. Who knows? It could be longer. But wanted to ask you about the whole idea of covering sexual, viol- uh, sexual abuse, sexual-related violence. Um, we know a lot of things that came out of the recent hearings, and obviously the whole Me Too movement is the believability of survivors, victims, and how news outlets can cover that without being unfair to uh, all parties involved and maybe falling into some of the stereotypes of sexual attacks and rape and how uh, victims and survivors are treated. What what would be your first uh, piece of advice for reporters and news uh, outlets and, and uh, news consumers and viewers and readers to to take into account when people are reporting on these allegations? Yeah. I think one of the first things is to really pay attention to the words that are being used to report uh, on on these kinds of of cases. Um, We have to keep in mind, most journalists are are not topic experts. That's why they reach out to places like my organization, because you you need to talk to people who have expertise um, in victimization, in offender dynamics, in really understanding this crime. This is a crime that is widely misunderstood by the American public. Most of the things people have very strong beliefs about are not actually based in what we know to be true. They're more based in our our, our oral mythology, if you, if you will, for, for our country, the way that we've always talked about sexual assault, which frankly is opposite uh, most of the time from what we know to be true about how victims really uh, respond afterwards and the different ways in, in which um, offenders present in, in our in our communities. So I would really be paying attention to language. So when, when you say see things like um, referring to things such as a, a he said, she said, um, you need to keep in mind that that almost trivializes it. This is this is still a sexual assault. Um, most sexual assaults by design because it is the offender who is choosing where when, how, and who they're assaulting, they choose to do that in a location where they're not going to be observed, or if anybody who is observing is either a participant or somebody that they uh, implicitly trust to to not turn them in. So secrecy is a key element uh, by strategic design on the side of offenders. So to simply call it, oh, it's a he said, she said, like it's it's not serious, um, doesn't do any anything to advance our nation's understanding. It doesn't do anything to hold offenders accountable, and it does nothing for victim safety. So that would be one. Um, but let me ask you this: the, yeah. the idea that it's interesting. You talk about he said, she said. You don't really hear this in in other crimes. You know, no. someone is accused of. Well, I mean, people deny crimes, but it seems like the perpetrator in a sexual assault 
is more believed in many cases. Is that because sometimes it's someone that doesn't necessarily have a record or have an image of being a, a violent person or a, I think or an all of those things predator. are are partially true, but I I think yeah. actually it goes even deeper, which is that historically we have not publicly recognized the truth about what sexual assault looks like until very recently. So we traditionally what we have seen covered um, in, in news media or even in entertainment is often. Um, this idea of, of, a, of a stranger assailant, a blitz attack, something with gratuitous violence, where what we really know um, is that it is often somebody within the victim's circle, family, friend of the family, peer group. Um, the element of surprise is often enough to overtake somebody. Um, you know, so we, we really only started pulling back the curtain on what sexual assault really looks like in terms of it being non-stranger sexual assault uh, in, in the early 90s. Uh, so this is still a new concept, and I think that those oral traditions run deep and are, are hard to overcome. And most of the time, the assailants are people like the rest of us. So they may have great jobs and behave well in public and pay their taxes and help the neighbors with their snow shoveling and do other upstanding kinds of things, and they do bad things behind closed doors, our national conversation still wants to make it an all or nothing, that, that if you commit sexual assaults, you must also be a bad person in obvious kinds of ways, and that is just not true. And how much of it relates to the way that men were sort of accepted, uh, boys will be boys, although I never knew of anyone who thought raping or sexually assaulting someone was boys will be boys, but it does go to the the lesser versions of it where men maybe grab a woman or, or say something offensive or that that goes into the realm of sexual harassment, which obviously came to fore a lot with the Anita Hill case. Um, but, but the general way that men were allowed to be treating women as far back as, as centuries ago, but even just a few decades ago, if uh, a lot of people watched right. Mad Men is a show that was on in recent years. There was a lot of abuse of women in that. There was... Uh, physical abuse, but there was also just general harassment. And is it the idea that men were allowed to, to behave a certain way uh, for so long that now that it's come out that some people still don't want to don't want to uh, change the view, or is that well? I, I think that's out? a simplified version of it, but I, I think that there are elements of, of truth right. to that. I, I think that we are socially and culturally um, accepting of um, men getting to have uh, sexual access and sexual permission um, in all kinds of ways, and have not been willing to um, firmly define when it is crossing the line from sex into violence and abuse. And so, even even that sort of boys will be boys thing, um, I think that that still sometimes applies to accounts of non-stranger sexual assault, particularly when drugs or alcohol are involved, that there's sort of this idea of um, it was just a bad decision. And, and we forget that there's still strategy that goes into that decision, and there's still overcoming um, e- either – uh, defiance by the other person who's saying no or trying to push a person off or to like where in our cultures that we're teaching people that it's okay to have um, to, to perform sexual acts on a person who's unconscious. That's not boys being boys. That, that's not normal behavior. But when we excuse it as such, um, we, we make it really difficult on everybody because frankly, those kinds of sentiments 
aren't fair to most men either because most men are not behaving in these kinds of ways. But um, when we have a hard time accepting that maybe somebody in our social circle does do those things, it's really uncomfortable. And we would prefer to find excuses for them and why we still think they're a nice person or an upstanding person instead of saying, um, my friend who has a lot of qualities I really like also does some things that are really deplorable. And like, where, where does that leave me? How, how do I deal with this in my life? And, and I, I think we, we want the simple answer, which is like, well, then they just can't be that bad. But, you know, the rate of sexual assault is um, pretty steady in our culture. Um, the rate of victimization has not really decreased. Somebody out there is responsible for these crimes. You know, <laughs> it's not a single person. When you say victim, when you say victimization, right. what do you well, mean? Well, if you look at different national studies where we are asking people retrospective questions, have these things ever happened to you in your life? And and we describe things that meet legal definitions of sexual assault, such as performed a sex act on you against your will while you, they were holding you down, while you were in and out of consciousness, when you were the, under the age of 12, 13, 14. You know, people say, yes, those things happened to me. So that's the rate of victimization. You're getting the same similar rates of that among, among Pretty, those kind of surveys? Yes. More, the same people are still revealing that they were victimized at the same rate as they were what? Yes. Five, yes. ten years yes. ago, or further, so, or okay. So that's sort it's of it's still going still on. Going on. Yeah. Or are are women more willing to reveal it? When they well, yes and no. So when we look at those kinds of surveys, there's a reason that, that researchers ask the questions the way that they do. If you say to somebody, have you ever been raped? People right. often say no. Because, again, that, that word still makes us think of a, a t attacks with gratuitous violence. But when you define it and say right. – have, have these things happened to you, then people will identify, yes, those things have happened to me. But what I think what has changed is particularly with the way that social media has impacted the way that we communicate, you get to do it a little bit more anonymously, a little bit more removed than it would be in a face-to-face -face conversation. And you get to see what other people respond. So we've seen social media have a huge impact on um, activism around campus sexual assault going back four or five years um, in talking about child sexual abuse with grand jury reports and the Sandusky case and the Nassar case. Um, you know, people, when, when you start to see it and talk about it and share information, it starts to lower the inhibition about talking about it. So I do think that we are currently in an environment where more and more people are willing to say these things have happened to me too and, and to disclose in their social circles, but that's still different than taking it to, to the police. Um, we have seen over the past 25 years the rates of reporting to law enforcement have seemed like they've increased a little bit, so you know, headed in the right direction. Um, but this is still a crime that ultimately, because our, our society rarely responds appropriately to victims. When victims realize that something terrible has happened to them, more often than not, they're choosing to to keep it to themselves. They're weighing, will, will I get help or will more damage be done to me, whether that's reputation, losing my social circle, fallout with my family, implications for my employment. Women are, are and, and men who are victimized are weighing those things and often deciding that they don't want to share. They just don't trust the rest of us to to tell us that something has happened to them. So, looking at the media coverage, at the me at the me from the Me Too movement, 
which uh, I guess we could date back to the first Harvey Weinstein stories, but obviously it goes back further in many ways. But that's sort of the the recent uh, occurrences, right up to the Brett Kavanaugh uh, issue. Where, where do you think the media? Where, where would you rate their their coverage, and what's been the difficulty and and, and problem? Or also, yeah. what, what have they done right? Uh, I think more and more wrong. people are are paying attention to it. So number one, just volume of stories is really helpful. Um, I've been working in this field for 26 years, and I can tell you it's only been about five where I've been really busy with media calls. <laughs> you know, so this is this has become a topic that is regular, uh, regular nightly news, and and that is important because it is a regular daily occurrence with incredible um, importance to our society. So covering it more frequently is very important. I still think different um, different journalists have different skill sets. So are we using um, the language of consensual sex to try to report on criminal sex acts, um, which, which we see frequently. So things such as, you know, referring to um, a teacher who's been sexually abusing a student as having a sexual relationship. You don't get arrested for a relationship. You get arrested for abuse or for institutional sexual assault, depending on what your, your state statute is. So we need to, to, I think, pay really good attention to language choices and coverage because they, they can either educate the community and, and help people think about it more accurately or inadvertently reinforce um, our confusion about it. So we, we do want people to be careful about that sort of language. Um, I think another thing, too, is, you know, there's sometimes this idea that you have to get give um, fair balance to like both sides of the story to be unbiased. And I think that's, that's a really dangerous um, standard to have because this is not a crime in which um, there's an equal amount of false reporting. And it's not a crime in which offenders are readily volunteering that, yes, I did it. You know, what, what the norm is, is that um, people who perpetrate these crimes continue to say that it wasn't them or they didn't do it, even after they've been convicted. So, you know, for... Right, because it is such a violent, uh, uh, offensive, right. deplorable act, whereas someone, if someone steals or if someone lies or if someone cheats on their taxes, what is the the false reporting right now? Well, what we say is we, we did do um, a meta-analysis of the research on false reporting. And what we say is that false reporting for sexual assault falls between 2 and 8% of the time based on the research that's been done. Now, that that is taking into account that sometimes you don't have enough information to make a determination. That doesn't mean it's a false report. A false report is when there's been an investigation done and it has been determined by finding opposite kinds of evidence that somebody has outright lied. Again, going back to the basis that this is a crime most often perpetrated in, in secrecy, without witnesses, um, oftentimes preying upon other kinds of vulnerabilities that make it difficult to ascertain what happened. So that could be um, intoxication, lack of consciousness, um, other kinds of, of mental illness or um, learning disabilities. You know, we, what we find is that um, the more kinds of vulnerabilities a person has, the more likely it is that they have experienced multiple sexual assaults. So you're not always going to find evidence. Uh, and, and I think our nation has skewed toward this idea that uh, if you don't have evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, you're not even allowed to form your own opinion. <laughs> and that, that's a trial um, standard. It's, that's not the standard for using common sense or your own believability about the people that, that, that you know. Um, we're all entitled to make 
those kinds of decisions. Um, That idea of innocent until proven guilty is a right afforded to people who are um, participating in a court of law, whether that's a a criminal court or a civil court, and there are different standards of evidence that have to be overcome in order to get an outcome. Um, But that doesn't mean that those standards apply to society overall. Right, and with with a lot of these stories, I don't mean to interrupt, um, and again, uh, we're talking to Kristen Hauser. She is Chief Public Affairs Officer at the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. With a lot of these Me Too issues and, and cases, there, there is no criminal, uh, or there is criminal activity perhaps, but there's no there's right. no criminal court, no criminal investigation being done, except for Bill Cosby. And even in his case, I think we only had one one victim that actually went to trial, and obviously she got a conviction that send him away mm-hmm. for three to ten years but in in the in the Matt Lauer case and the Charlie Rose case these are these are harassing from harassment to assault and of course what Kavanaugh is being accused of is 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 assault as well but there's not a you're not in a no. criminal court so for what would you say to news outlets when they go about it? most of them seem to seek a lot of a lot of proof a lot of investigation I know in the Kavanaugh case they talked about um Dr. Ford's uh Right. Therapist records. They talked about she had really clear information about what happened and and, and the activities that occurred. Um, and then before any other uh, accusers came forward, that was enough at least for one news outlet to come. But again, they also had that there had been a letter written to Congress. You know, all these different pieces seemed to be enough for them to believe her. And then the New Yorker had its own issues and, and points of, of how does a news outlet go to the point of believability when there is no court activity or, or, or law enforcement investigation? And do you think they're they're getting enough information to be believed and also give the yeah. victim a fair Well, treatment? it's sort of an interesting question because I think most outlets that I work with um, really vet stories to determine whether or not they feel comfortable printing it. You know, they're, they've got their own legal considerations to determine take into account. So by the time something makes it into print or makes it into production, um, it's been vetted. Uh, You can't just call up and and say, hey, this person did it to me. Will you please print it in your paper that it doesn't work that way? So outlets are are doing that vetting and determining, you know, this this is credible enough for us to, to move forward with it. I think the difficulty is is not with news outlets, but it's it's with the general public. Um, you know, interestingly, we've been inundated with calls about Kavanaugh, Cosby, grand jury reports. I mean, you you name it. And the question I answer almost every single call is, why don't victims report? And at some point, I have to wonder. Why aren't we asking why doesn't America believe why victims don't report? You know, you know it's they've been telling us for years. We've been spreading that out there. Um, the, the answer is because the rest of us don't respond appropriately or in helpful ways. They're afraid to come forward for a lot of their their own good reasons, and yet as a nation, we are still. Um, stuck in this place of thinking that if it happened, that somebody's going to go to the police right away. And it just isn't true. And on top of it, we're not paying attention to other headline stories about the fact that the criminal justice system is sometimes broken in other ways when it comes to this issue. Um, we wouldn't have rape kit backlog if it was a perfect system. And, and instead, we have a, a horrific problem in this country with rape kit backlog. We wouldn't have cases taking... 
What is rape um, kit kits that are taken backlog. from rape victims and then never processed uh, for, right. for DNA or um, and enter into the national database, et cetera. So, you know, we're taking collecting evidence and not processing it. A rape kit is something that's done by it's, law it's, enforcement. It's collected at a hospital, by most of the time, by a forensic nurse right. examiner, and preserved. And then chain of evidence is preserved, and it is handed off then to law enforcement to uh, to process and and uh, utilize it in the criminal case and moving forward. And uh, and most of them aren't. aren't well, aren't I wouldn't say most the of them aren't, but what I would say is that we we have discovered all over this nation, um, in in cities large and small, that there is there are a lot of rape kits that have been connect collected, and put in closets, thrown in desk drawers, sitting in storage, and have never been sent off to, to be processed. Um, we have had Department of Justice investigations into um, bias in policing, even if it's about racial bias. What they found, for instance, in Baltimore recently is that they found a huge gender bias in policing as well and um, a, a significant problem in uh, not pursuing sexual assault complaints and miscoding them. We, we've seen that repeated all over the country. So this this American idea that a rape results in a call to police is a figment of our imaginations. It's a figment of entertainment media, and it is not based in fact. And um, I think despite the fact that news outlets are telling the public that and covering the other stories, somehow it's not getting through to the American public that what we should be expecting is that victims keep it to themselves feel things out with partial reports. They may eventually tell a friend, and it is, it is a rare thing that people go to the police. That, that's, that's usually not somebody's first response. Um, and is part of that, obviously, the stigma right. that still surrounds uh, victims? I know that um, I teach uh, media and, and news, and one of the things I always tell my students is there are two, two uh, news uh, subjects you don't, identify one is a minor who's been arrested or any other minor in many cases and one right. is a, a rape victim and i know there was a push years ago i believe it was the des moines register yeah. tried a uh, an experiment they had a, a victim who was willing to be identified and there was a whole uh approach to that where she she gave her name and her whole story and i believe the editor was geneva overholzer who later was a washington yeah. post ombudswoman and now teaches in uh, california and she's one of our one of our favorite sources. Um, but that didn't really seem to catch on. Um, and it's understandable. Women are very, uh, very embarrassed, even though they shouldn't be. And it's a privacy factor. But does that stigma play into this? And is there any way that could get lifted in any way that might make women I more I think we are slowly chipping away at that stigma. Um, I just think we have a long way to go. Um, but I do think that things like the Me Too movement and campus activism that we've seen, the more we talk about this and, and listen to real people with their real accounts and stop demanding that they meet, you know, trial evidentiary standards in order to believe them, um, the more we're able to do that, the, the more we're going to erode that stigma. And we certainly have seen, I think, an increase in survivors that um, feel that telling their story publicly is important to their healing, that they, they want to feel like they're making a difference for somebody else or breaking that barrier for somebody else or giving them hope. Uh, and I, so I do think that more and more um, we're making progress in that direction. But 
um, if you if you hold that up against the kind of conversations that have happened these past two weeks about Kavanaugh, I think it's obvious we have, we have a, an awful long way to go because people are are wanting proof beyond a reasonable doubt for for a job interview uh, that, that's not even a, a a court case. And what would you be your last word to the uh, the news reporters out there to sort of advise them? Uh, to make to go forth covering these issues to, to really be sure way. that they are reaching out to expert sources, which is not prosecutors and defense attorneys, but reach out to people that are working with um, sex offender rehabilitation programs who can talk to us about the decision making, what offending behaviors really look like, and talk to people who have expertise in what victim responses look like. We're the ones who know those two groups of people are the ones who know um, what this this issue really looks like in America. And uh, we, we need your help helping to educate the rest of the country. Okay, thanks. And again, we've been talking to Kristen Hauser, Chief Public Affairs Officer at the National Sexual Violence Resource Center on sexual violence and media coverage of it. And I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Anna Newman at the University of Tulsa. You are a professor of psychology looking at traumatic life events, including sexual assault, but also the journalism aspect. I know you've done a lot of work uh, studying that and reviewing how journalism and news handles these events. What's your thought on what news outlets are doing these days in covering sexual assault and how would you would guide them to maybe doing things better, both for the victims and the readers? Well, I think that um, we've come a long way in terms of covering sexual assault. People are starting to, journalists are starting to use the right language. Um, They're starting to be clear about what is uh, sexual assault, uh, what is rape, not calling it bad sex. I mean, there's there's lots of terminology, and I think that terminology has really improved over time. That said, um, I think it's really important to get the details right. And let's start with sort of if you're talking to a person about sexual assault, um, it's important to approach them to be transparent, to be calm, to be soft-spoken, find out how your source wants to be identified, also to give your source some sense of control when you interview them, let your sources have you know, some where do you meet, and also to avoid any language that might impart, imply that the interviewee is responsible in any way. So there's sort of for the interviewee side. One of the other pieces when we think about covering sexual assault is the investigative side. It's important to get these stories right. And there have been a lot of mistakes done because journalists have not used their journalistic skills. So it's important to verify what you can verify. I think it's important to go beyond the typical, to contact counselors, support groups, advocacy groups, legal experts. Remember that the story is about a person and getting it right and is is really really important. How I think the, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. How is the verification done without questioning the validity of the of the victim and survivor or is that part of the journalism still to make sure this is true a lot of things that have come up say there's a lot of dispute uh, of of victims by those who would not believe them and when we realize the the uh, reporting uh, data shows that there are a few uh, false reports, and I think more of that's come out that, that there's more believability in, in the victims. But we also know the Rolling Stone case with the University of Virginia. Exactly. And going back to the Duke Lacrosse case, um, a lot of people hold those up, even though they're, they're clearly exceptions to the rule. But how much, how much proof do you, I mean, how much, yeah, how much investigation do you still need to do, and how do you do it without insulting or, or even hurting the victim? Well, Kristen Lombardi, who did the fabulous public uh, integrity series, 
on campus sexual assault, what she did with every person she interviewed had said is said, you know, look, I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to need to talk potential perpetrator. I'm going to get record. And this is how I do my job. It's not because I don't believe you. It's because this is what a journalist needs to do. And Kristen, and of course, was one of the early uh, Boston Catholic Church reporters yeah. uh, for the Phoenix, the Boston she Phoenix. She is before brilliant the Globe. at uh, this work. Yeah. Yes, that is the same person. Um, she is brilliant at interviewing victims, but she's very clear. I, as an investigative reporter, and not all stories are investigative reporting, right. but when you're going to do this and when you're going to tell a narrative, it's important that you be up front and you can tell someone, I need to do this. This is how journalism works. It's not because I don't believe you. It's because I can write a stronger story and there won't be a problem with telling the story. It protects everyone. So I think there are ways of doing it to be transparent and kind. Now, that said, not every story needs that. But when there's a case when there, you aren't able to do it or it doesn't matter for the story. And I, we're talking more about breaking news, I assume, right? Oh, all elements of sexual assault. Or all elements. Because there's, there's latest, different kinds of... Yeah. The yeah. Kavanaugh stories have... They've been sort of breaking news, but they were also, for those who dug up the stories, the original Washington Post coverage and then the New Yorker, they obviously did a lot of uh, investigative and, and, and follow-up before anything was published. And the, but then obviously there's other news outlets that take the story from there, and how do they go about both being fair to the, uh, the suspect, but also to the, to the survivor or victim, um, and to the reader. Right, and I think being accurate... Finding that balance between being accurate and not blaming. What I always ask journalists to do in their final check for a story is that they read through or they look at or they listen, whatever venue you use, that they examine their story and say, okay, if that was my wife, daughter, husband, child, is there anything in there that, that I wouldn't want said because it's, it has blaming language, it has inaccurate language? Not taking out the truth but sort of doing a gut check to see is there blaming language, is there, are there subtleties here. But I think that, you know, I've seen a lot of really good coverage. I'm thrilled to see less victim blaming, more accurate terminology. Mm. Um, I'm thrilled with the stories that are about um, the fragmentary nature of memory. Right, that's several elements of the Kavanaugh story. The right. victims were sure about certain things, but not necessarily about other things. And, and I know uh, there are still people out there who say, why didn't you report it at the time? Mm -hmm. When obviously there's so much data and, and coverage indicating why, that there's fear, there's concern, and that great response, especially on college campuses where obviously there's been a lot of sexual assault coverage. So one of the things that you're talking about is a good story has context, and I think that's some of what we're talking about. I still would like to see, there's a lot of new stories I'd like to see. I'd like to see more investigative reporting. I'd like to see more on the amazing work being done, for example, on campuses to reduce sexual assault, more science-based work helping. I actually think there are generational understandings of consent, um, and that could be a very important kind of news article. How did different generations understand? And there's a little bit hinting at this, but not really looking at what has consent meant in different times and places. I'd like to see more about bystanders, bystander intervention, bystanders of these things in the past. A little more on the analysis of Maybe, and we're starting to see that this week, campus Greek culture or campus, or just sort of culture and rape culture. How do you deal with the magnitude of the problems people are talking about? So those are some things that might make some, might be some future ways. And I'm sure that journalists are thinking about these kinds of issues and thinking about what, what is your audience needs to hear and know. 
And what do you think is the biggest plus coming from the coverage of the Kavanaugh issue that we've seen in journalism? And what's one of the biggest things that still needs to be addressed by reporters when they cover these issues? So what is the biggest plus coming out of it? I, um, I think that people are talking about sexual assault in very many different venues in many different ways. And I see the conversation as important. So I see that as, as a positive. And I and I'm particularly pleased to see people on, um, looking at the issues of, you know, why don't people report the memories of trauma, trying to integrate the science. I see that a lot more integrating the science to explain behaviors. I'm really happy to see that. I think what needs to go on now is sort of the next level of really trying to understand the issues and the solutions. I'd like to see more analysis of that. You think we're headed towards that? Is, are we on a good road, do you think, or you still need to see uh, how the coverage is handled? Well, I think we have to let this story unwind. We don't know what's going to happen. Mm. So there's sort of the story is unwinding, and I think journalists have to follow the story. So I don't know where it will go. But I do think, speaking to journalists, is that journalists are actively tracking the story, and they are talking about it. Oh, you know, the other thing I really have liked is the beginning coverage of interviewing and addressing children's and adolescents' understanding of these issues, and the focus on parenting. And what, how parents explain the news to their children? Yeah, there's at least I've been reading some coverage about how do you talk to your kids about this? How do you start having these conversations with your children? And I've started to see a lot more, and I've been asked a lot by um, reporters about that. So this is a family issue, mm-hmm. is something I really have thought is interesting. And how do you have these conversations, whether it's about consent or whether it's about kids' understanding of the news? And also, I've seen some programs where kids are actually talking about what they understand and I of, about the about what this trial is about and what it means and what does consent mean. And I think that kind of news is very, very interesting as well. Excellent. Well, so, so let me just say one more thing. Please. So I do think that people are broadening their angles mm-hmm. um, across all news media about how they're covering this, and they are trying to do it responsibly without blaming or inaccurate language. And also the other thing I think that I think is, is pretty um, good at this point is people are acknowledging what they know and don't know. That's always a good point. And I will thank you, uh, Alana Newman from the University of Tulsa, a psychology professor focusing on both traumatic life events and journalistic coverage of those events. Uh, thanks a lot for uh, chatting with us for a while. Okay, take care. Shapiro, executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. How are you doing, Bruce? I'm great. Excellent. I appreciate you talking to us. Actually, we're uh, uh, half a world apart. I know you just got to Seoul, South Korea, and I appreciate you taking time out. It's uh, probably jet lag uh, and beyond for you, but you sound good to us. If I if I uh, burst into sudden streams of incoherence, you can blame it on jet lag. No, I think you're fine. We'll keep it short and sweet. We just wanted to ask you about, we're obviously talking about sexual assault and the coverage of sexual assault both relates to the uh, Brett Kavanaugh story this week. But in general, the way that newspapers and news outlets are approaching the coverage of this, uh, where do you see the good and the bad of how they're doing it and what, what can be done better from your standpoint as someone who both deals with journalism and the trauma elements that are covered by it? Sure. Well, let's start here, which is that as a profession on the whole, we have come a very, very long way from where we were a generation ago uh, you know, when it was still common to use the names of 
offender of, of, of uh, survivors in news stories without their permission in the days when sexual assault was either not reported on at all or reported on in ways that blame victims or reported on in other irresponsible ways. We have we have come a long way. And in particular, we have come a long way because there is a whole generation of investigative reporters who have made, who have first of all decided that sexual assault is news, and secondly, that it deserves special techniques of investigative reporting to, to ferret it out and to show patterns of institutional cover-up and abuse as well as individual abuses of power. You can go back to you know, the Boston Globe's Spotlight series on sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, the great reporting about six years ago by Kristen Lombardi at the Center for Public Integrity on sexual assault on college campuses, reporting by uh, NPR on sexual assault uh, on Native American women on reservations, by the Denver Post on, on others on sexual assault in the U.S. military. All of this reflects a body of work, a body of techniques, and a sense that there is a legitimate and important public interest news story in sexual assault that uh, that wasn't there. I mean, we we are at a point where you have some major news organizations really investigating the failure of police to investigate sexual assault. The Cleveland Plain Dealer, for example, um, has done super reporting on um, unprocessed advocates and historic sexual assault has gone simply uninvestigated for years as a result. Um, There's a sense that sexual assault as an abuse of power, sexual assault as a case of institutional failure has become an important theme for modern American news. Uh, We wouldn't have the Me Too movement without this generational commitment. And I I think that's a a good thing. And how much do you think the news outlets are focusing on the believability factor when we have still have people who say things like, uh, why didn't uh, Dr. Ford or others report it at the time? And obviously there are reasons why uh, victims don't report it right away, and many don't report it at all. And the idea of he said, she said, where you take the perpetrator's word equally to the victim, um, is that getting challenged or explained enough? Well, look, I, I think in... In the Kavanaugh case, what you have is an instance, first of all, of politicians uh, from the president of the United States on down whose understanding of sexual assault and how to tell the story about it is years behind much of the public's and is years behind you know, the sophistication of many news organizations. When Donald Trump essentially says, you know, well, there would have been a police report, and that's how we know it didn't really happen at stake because it would have been a police report. He's expressing and tapping into a truly retrograde lack of understanding about sexual assault that does need to be addressed. And I think we had a problem with the Kavanaugh nomination, which was the the reporting on that, reporting on Dr. Christine Bosey Ford's allegations in the hands of first of political reporters who whose approach is defined most of the time 
as reporting what the people who are the, the headline makers say in he said, she said manner, right? And that's fine for your normal political story. Your normal political story is the budget will pass this year, says uh, Senator McConnell. Over my dead body, says uh, Senator Schumer. Uh-huh. So what, there is a political element to it um, that, I don't mean to interrupt you, the idea that it's a political story as well as a, an assault story, so does that give more challenge to it, or do you just have to address it differently and realize there are political uh, reasons that they're doing things, not necessarily trying to find the truth, but trying to sway political uh, wind their way for a certain reason? And how do you how do you do that if you're well, covering I, I both think, aspects? I think, I, I think it, means, it, it means that political reporters who are accustomed to taking things very literally don't always understand right. that, and political editors don't always understand that as soon as you get into the terrain of covering a sexual assault allegation, the technique of storytelling changes. Criminal justice reporters know that. People who cover police departments and who, who cover uh, courts have developed often, not always, but often some pretty good language for talking about sexual assault allegations. Political reporters, it was over the last 15, 20 years of journalism history hadn't happened. And we're back to he said, she said, and we're back to why, to, to just taking its face value. Uh, well, if they didn't call the cops, it didn't really happen. And I think there, it's a shame that there was a moment of education lost mm-hmm. when the breaking news stories on the Kavanaugh controversy should have included more contextualizing information that immediately discredited the sort of the sort of noises that politicians were making. That's not about the guilt or innocence of, of Kavanaugh or the truth or falsehood of, of Ford, but right in the first instance, they should have been putting out data about how few claims of false claims about sexual assault there are about the underreporting. That that's public health information that should have been included as the story was first breaking. And let me ask you to take it out of the Kavanaugh story, just sexual assault in general, how it's covered now. Um, you obviously mm-hmm. have the Dr. Larry Nasser story out of Michigan State. You have even going back to the yeah. uh, Penn State story and the Catholic Church story and uh, then obviously the Me Too uh, <laughs> stories. What is your biggest guidance you give to reporters as, as these stories keep coming? How do, What are they doing right, and what do they maybe need to improve and technique-wise as they go after these stories to be fair to, to both sides and to the reader? Sure. Well, I think first, what are they doing right? They're doing the stories. Right. These are stories that were shrouded in silence. Whoever thought that Hollywood producers uh, sexually harassing performers was anything other than a joke? Well, it's news now. Mm-hmm. Um, these are issues that have been happening for a long time. They're about both abuse of power by enormous individual, uh, enormously powerful individuals, people like Larry Nasser, and about failures of major institutions like universities to protect people in their, in their charge and to recognize the prevalence of sexual assault as a public health issue. So the fact that we're doing these stories at all is a good thing. I think there is still, at times, too much salacious reporting on sex when rape is not about sex, it's about power. I think there is still not enough opportunity taken to educate the public about the prevalence of sexual assault in our own communities and what we 
can do to prevent it or hold people to account. So I think uh, all of those things, you know, could be done. I think local journalists could do more in finding ways to integrate the experiences of assault survivors at in local newsrooms and on the local news agenda. And that takes a little bit of changing of reporting technique, of developing interview techniques that will make deeply traumatized individuals who normally are not in the news comfortable. I think we could do more of that. But look, I think American journalism has come a very long way in reporting on sexual assault. The fact that these stories are given credence at all, that we now are at a point where sexual assault may, or accusation of sexual assault may topple a presumed shoe-in of a Supreme Court nominee. This is, in part, a triumph of journalism. How much do you think the fact that there's so many of these, those accused um, were in the media? We're talking Charlie Rose, Matt Lauer, Roger Ailes, several other uh, incidents at Fox News, uh, Harvey Weinstein in the you know, obviously a, a media mm-hmm. power. Does that make it more difficult or make it more aware? Make the 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 news people more aware because it's right in their building in some cases. Or does that not really play any more of a role than any other? No, I, I I I think so. First of all, on one level, media our profession is no different than any other business in which men who had a lot of power saw themselves as having the right and the ability to exercise that power for sex, to use it to coerce sex from women with less power. You know, in that sense, industries encourage absolute power that a sports coach has, that a priest or a bishop has, or in terms that a a talk show host or star or lead producer has. Um, That's a hazardous situation that makes abuse really likely. I also think that as journalists, we're not always good at policing our own house. Uh, I think that recognizing abuses of power within our industry and reporting on them has been very challenging because these are relationships among colleagues uh, within people's own news organizations. Verifying them, reporting them while remaining fair and objective is, is challenging. But it's possible to do it. Uh, there, are, I'm aware of a couple of public news organizations, public radio organizations, for example, that hired outside producers onto their news teams in order to report on with a, a kind of to fence off the local news team from needing to make um, decisions about covering themselves. That's one way of doing it. Um, there are internal reports. There's ways of making this happen, but. Um, I think this is a, a generational a generational accounting. I certainly know that when I started out in journalism for men of a certain age, it was simply considered normal and average to be hitting on uh, your subordinates. And a disturbing number of, of my colleagues, of People I knew in their 20s or have come to know in their 30s and 40s never grew out of that irresponsible and abusive and fundamentally unpleasant perception, even as the world around them has changed. And so you had, you know, NPR gutted, its news team gutted by sexual harassment claims. You had all kinds of news organizations that 
uh, public, public radio, other public radio stations locally. Garrison, Keeler, all top to bottom, this kind of generational purge of men in leadership positions who didn't get the memo. Are, are we going to see? Are we going to see more of that? Do you think in other? Or is there a surprise we haven't seen that in other industries? Big business, sports. Is that I coming think, to? I, yeah, it's, it's more prevalent it, where, where I, we've seen. It is. I I am sure. I mean, yeah. sports actually we've begun to see a fair amount of it starting in college sports, and you can be sure that. That's true. You have Jameis Winston. You have some other people. There's been a lot of investigative reporting in sports. I think the big arena where we have not yet it play out is the corporate boardroom. Yeah, uh, that's where, what I thought would, know, be, would be the People at the level of less movements, but in other industries, in finance and Wall Street, I think that's an arena where folks are still protecting themselves pretty mm-hmm. well. But my guess is that that is one institution where we are going to see the, the next round of, of hardcore investigative reporting. And it should be said claims by survivors seeking outside validation. This has now gone beyond being a great reporting story. It's a social movement. Me Too is a social movement which has its own identity that encourages women to come forward. And I think that is going to change Wall Street just as it's already changed the news media, just as it's already changed Hollywood. Very interesting. Well, I appreciate it. We've been talking to Bruce Shapiro, Executive Director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. I appreciate your time, sir. We'll probably be uh, reaching out to you again as this issue is not going to go away and perhaps other traumatic journalism issues. Thank you for uh, being with us. And that's it for this week's edition of Joe's Media Corner. Make sure to tune in again to our next episodes when we talk about media issues and how they affect you. Thanks for listening.